So we're going to start a, um, a new set of conversations uh, this week. We're going to be looking at the period of time immediately after Jesus uh, came down from the mountain in which he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Um, many of us uh, could could come up with something we've heard from the from the Sermon on the Mount, but what happened immediately after that? And it's an interesting it's an interesting thing as you read the scriptures to see what happened after Jesus finishes after he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, because he experiences kind of a honeymoon. Um, we know later on uh, Jesus encountered opposition that hardened into resistance and ultimately led to his crucifixion. We know that that took place later. But during that during that beginning part of his ministry, Jesus is still kind of a rock star. People, there's crowds following him. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. And so he's experiencing this this honeymoon period or maybe a grace period, you might call it. And Jesus, Jesus does some things there. Um, uh, that that he has not uh, done for the last couple of chapters. For three chapters, he's been talking, but now Jesus begins acting, and so it's an interesting passage just to see what Jesus is is doing during this period. But um, today we're going to look at we're going to look at the first thing he does. The first section of this this passage is where where he performs these different healings, and as you look at them, it's it's hard to see do they have anything in common? Is there anything you can kind of abstract and say, well, well, all right. Uh, I can see how that would apply to me. Um, and it's difficult to come up with a rule of thumb and say, well, okay, well, Jesus helps people like that. So so uh, if, if we look at them, we're going to see, as we just heard, there was a story about a, a leper who was healed. There was a, the servant of a Roman officer who was healed. And um, and then there was Peter's mother-in-law. And it's like, what do they have in common? Not much. I mean, they got healed, so there was that. But, but other than that, was there anything they had in common? It, it's not obvious that there is. Um, and and the the... The, the nature of that is that um, they, they were they were different people. They had different problems. The way Jesus healed them is differently. Jesus doesn't doesn't um, touch them all. He touches some, but he doesn't touch others. He speaks a, a healing command to others. It's not obvious how are these things connected. And actually, I think that's a good thing because if there was something where as long as Jesus touches you, you're healed. Well, that's great. Except Jesus isn't around to touch people anymore. So so how would I experience that? Jesus only helps Roman centurions. Well, there aren't any Roman centurions anymore. So so it's actually good that there. There's not a, a handy um, uh, uh, connection between these three healings. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to look at the, the connection that I did see. Because what they all did is they went to Jesus or they were brought to Jesus for help. And I think that's something that's very easy for us not to do. It's very easy for us to say no to Jesus. And we don't do it consciously. We don't specifically say, well, you know, I'm, you know, Jesus is right there ready to help me, but no, I don't think so. Instead, what I think we do is we say no for him in, in a d- bunch of different subtle ways. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the ways that people here don't say no. And then imagine what the objection we might have said in their place was. And then when we're done, we'll have a list of objections. And whenever we hear those objections, as we're, as we're speaking them, as we hear other people speaking them, we can say, wait a minute, that's a great place. Whenever I hear that, that's a reminder. This would be a great place to say, hey, you know what? Jesus may have something to contribute to this situation. And so when we hear these objections, we will say, oh, wait, hold on a minute. I remember a story where somebody might have had that same objection, but they didn't act on it. They didn't say no for Jesus. So that's what I want to do is I want to look at this um, this grace period and specifically these healings so that we can learn how not to say no for Jesus. So um, we begin, uh, um, as, as we heard, uh, large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. 
And um, suddenly a man with leprosy approaches him and kneels before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. And um, for us to, to us to hear that, you know, we know Jesus healed people. And so we would say, of course, people would come to Jesus and expect him to heal them. But this is actually a place where the man would have been fully um, uh Normal. It would have been the most normal thing for him to say, you know what, this is not a good place for Jesus to, to heal me, right? I'm not a good candidate for healing. This would be a place where it would be very easy for people to say no. And the reason is because leprosy was not a healable disease. If you read through the Hebrew scriptures, and Jesus is, is working here in, in Galilee, so the people would have been familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, they would have said, you know what, in all of the Hebrew scriptures, only one Israelite is ever healed from leprosy. The, the sister of, of uh, Moses, uh, Miriam, she was healed from leprosy, but not one other Israelite is ever healed from leprosy. So there, there was this, this expectation, and in some places we actually see it, it's stated in so many words, that God punishes people with leprosy, that, that there was this idea that somehow if you have leprosy, maybe God's not punishing you, but, but you haven't got God's favor in some way. And so there was this idea that not only do you have a bad disease that nobody wants, but somehow God is tied up with it, and God doesn't heal people like that, because, because this problem is too bad. And so, so the first, the first objection we might hear ourselves saying is, this problem is too bad. This problem is, is so bad that God can't fix it. Or, because we're, we're, we're modern people, we don't say, we don't say God can't fix it. We say God won't fix it. We say that God has a set of rules, and God can't violate His own rules. Theologians make up scenarios where they say, could God lift a rock, could God make a rock so heavy that God couldn't lift the rock? That, that for God to lift this rock would mean God would have to violate the laws of nature because nature, uh, the nature of this rock is it's so heavy. So we kind of come up with things like that ourselves. We say God could heal the leper, but you know, the leper's being punished or, or, you know, the doctor needs to know that the world is predictable. And so we come up with these things and so we say God, God would never intervene in a situation like this because, because the problem is just beyond God's help. Or we might say instead of saying that, we'd say it's not that God can't, it's that God won't. So we say the problem is too bad. We say this problem is just too bad. And so when you hear yourself saying this problem is too bad, or uh, uh, the, the situation that I'm thinking of is just, you know, it's, it's not beyond God, but it's beyond God given the set of rules that God has chosen to operate in. Then it's instructive to see what Jesus does, because what Jesus does is he reaches out and touches him. He says, I am willing, be healed. It's interesting that the, the, the uh, leper says, are you willing? Because just two chapters ago, back in chapter 6, Jesus said we should, we should pray, when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we should say, Thy will be done on earth. And sometimes we mean it exactly like the leper. We say, you know, if you, if it is your will, then you can heal me. But sometimes I think we use it as an excuse. We say, you know, this is what I want, but there's just no predicting you, God, and so really, I've already resigned myself to the fact you're not going to give me what I want, so thy will be done, and I guess I'm just on my own. And I think sometimes we pray it that way. The leper does not. The leper prays it the way it's meant to. He says, God, you have the capability to fix me, right? You can cleanse me of my leprosy. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I am willing. And maybe that's a good lesson, right, just as a little side note. Why don't we start with that assumption? Why don't we just start with the assumption that God is willing to help? 
And, you know, God sees the future. God knows what his plans are for us. And maybe God isn't going to heal us or not going to heal us right away. But why don't we just start with the assumption, instead of saying, you know, God never heals people, so why bother? Instead, let's start with the assumption that Jesus is willing to heal us. Now, uh, so, so he then goes on, he says, he says, uh, Jesus uh, says, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and have him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who've been healed of leprosy. Oh, I need to keep up. So it is too bad, but it's not too bad. Jesus is willing. He says, take along the um, offering and um, uh, show the priest, uh, because this will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. So Jesus says, yes, God has rules, but... God knows when the rules apply and we don't always. So he tells the leper, you go ahead and you obey the law. You you carry out the rules according to the book of Leviticus, but I'm going to touch you anyway because because I know when um when the rules apply. So, if God can lift a stone that's too heavy for him to lift um or he cannot mess this up. So, if there if if God can make a stone too heavy for God to lift, God can also choose to lift it anyway. So, all right. So uh, that's that's the first one. When we hear when we hear ourselves saying this problem is too bad, it's just too bad, it's beyond help. The answer is no, it's not. So that's the first place. Let's remember Jesus may have something to contribute there. The second story is this: Jesus returns to Capernaum, and a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, "Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain." And we completely miss the point of this story. We hear this and we say, "Well, you know, that sounds like a reasonable thing to do." But l- let me let me. Is, create another scenario for you instead. It's 2006. You're in eastern Afghanistan, right on the the edge of the Pakistani border. And there's an American lieutenant who's working at a forward operating base there, just a few miles from Pakistan. And he hears, you know, he's got his intel operation going on. He's talking to the locals. He's, He's hearing rumors and chatter. And he hears that there's a healer in this village over there. And people are getting well. And he says, you know what? Why don't I go ask him? Why don't I go ask that healer in the village over there if he can help my corporal? So he goes over to the, the guy, meets him halfway outside the village someplace and says, could you help my corporal? Now, what's the healer going to do? Is the healer going to say, sure, you're an occupying soldier. You're living in my country. I don't remember asking you. <laughs> Is he going to say, sure, I'll, I'll help? And even if he does, stop for a minute. Remember, that guy lives in a village. What, what are the people in the village going to say if he does that? If he goes into the forward operating base and he goes and heals that American corporal? What's, what's everybody else going to say? And at this point, it may be helpful to remember that, that Jesus had a guy working in his inner group. One of his 12 disciples was a man named Simon the Zealot. And for us, Zealot doesn't mean much. But in place of the word Zealot, just say Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Okay, Simon the Al-Qaeda member, Simon the Taliban member. That's who Jesus had in his inner circle. Are you going to even ask him to help? And is he going to say yes when you ask him? So this this centurion, this Roman officer who comes to Jesus, is it's it's almost inconceivable that he would ask that. And it's almost inconceivable that Jesus would say yes. And so Jesus says exactly that. Jesus says, sure, I'll go and help. And for us to understand this, we have to realize what Jesus is doing is beyond the pale. It is it is 
inconceivable. It is, it is unbelievable that he would help somebody who is that kind of outsider. That when we hear ourselves saying, it is inconceivable that God would care about people who are outsiders like that. That people that who are way beyond the pale. God has nothing to do with people like that. It's easy for us to imagine those circumstances. Maybe you're filling in the gaps right now. You're thinking, who are the people that God would have nothing to do with? You know, the outsiders. But maybe sometimes the person we're thinking of is ourself. We say, you know, I've got the rest of these people fooled, but I know the truth. I know that I am the one who's beyond the pale. But Jesus is happy to go beyond the pale. Jesus is happy to go to the centurion's home and heal the corporal. And in fact, he's on the verge of doing it when the officer says, says, you don't have to. I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. It'll create more difficulties for you in what you're doing if you do. But I understand authority. I know how, I know how authority works. And he says, I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go and they come. Or, or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. Jesus says, this is amazing. He turns away from the Gentile and he says to his, his, his homies, he says to his, his crew, right? He turns around and says to them, he says, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles, many outsiders, many people from beyond the pale, will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, many of us, many of us insiders, ones for whom the kingdom was prepared, they will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus tells the Roman officer, go, go back home because you believed it's happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. So when we hear ourselves saying, it's inconceivable, it's beyond the pale, it's it's unimaginable that Jesus would go to people like that, or sometimes people like the real me, that's when we need to remember, maybe Jesus has something to contribute here, and not say no for Jesus. So, where does Jesus go from there? Well, he's, he's uh, gotten back to Capernaum, and he enters um, Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed with high fever. Now, it's not obvious what has she got in, you know, how is she related to the centurion? She's the very opposite. She's not a Roman. She's not um, uh, um, an occupying uh, army member. She's she's an insider. She's really inside because Peter is like the chief member of the, the inner circle of 12 that, that Jesus has in his followers. So she's as connected as she could possibly be, you know. And, and Peter's probably motivated helper, you know. She's always been complaining, you know, I don't see what my daughter sees in you, you know, that, that kind of thing. <laughs> Not that mothers-in-law ever do that, but but if, if, if he ever experienced that, and, you know, especially after he abandoned the fishing business, and now she's, she's thinking it even more so, he's following that religious guy, right? This is a great opportunity to show, hey, hey, uh, um, mother-in-law, you know, this worked out pretty good, didn't it? So, so he's motivated. She would be motivated. Like, here's somebody who could help me. But, you know, the funny thing I've noticed is that sometimes it's the insiders who are the least willing to go to Jesus and say, you know, I've got a problem. Sometimes it's pride, but sometimes it's it's a perverse kind of pride. Um, we say it's not fair. 
It's, it's favoritism. If Jesus helped me and didn't help the other people, that would be wrong somehow, wouldn't it? I've actually had people say this. I go to the hospital, I visit people, and they say, they say, you know, I, I say, I say what, how can I pray for you? What, what, what would you like me to pray for you? And they say, you know what? There's people just down the hall, every room on this whole, whole wing. There's people with problems as bad as mine or worse. And I would feel bad if I got healed. Because we don't want to, we don't want to leverage that insider status. Well, the good news is the mother-in-law doesn't leverage it. As far as we know, she doesn't even wake up. But Jesus goes over and touches her anyway. So the, 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 the lesson there is when we think it's favoritism, when we think it wouldn't be fair, when we say it, it's, it's not right somehow that, that we get some insider privilege, you know, leave that problem to Jesus. Just say, you know what, I'm going to go to Jesus anyway, and I'll let him sort out fairness. The same way I let him sort out fairness and, and if it's too hard and if now's not the right time, all those things, I'm not going to go to Jesus with him. I'm going to, I'm going to not say no for Jesus. So, that evening many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. And I think this shows two more types of objection we bring. We say, well, it's too many. Or it's not the right time. We say, we say that, that this would be a bad time to go to Jesus. You know, in theory, yes, Jesus is exactly the person I should be going to, but you know what? There's a line reaching outside Peter's mother-in-law's house, right? You know, we're number 87 and it's already evening. Jesus is going to knock off soon. I might as well just quit, right? There's no point in staying in line. There's no point in waiting. It's too late and it's, it's, there's too many people ahead of me. We come up with a bunch of other reasons. And so we say, we say, you know what, Jesus can't heal me. Jesus can't contribute anything to my situation because there's too many people or it's too late. But Jesus stays there as long as it takes and he heals everybody. Um, Matthew tells us um, that he healed all the sick. And one last objection. Matthew says he uh, that some of these people were demon-possessed. And he says he cast out the evil spirits with a simple command, and he healed all the sick. And that by doing so, he fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said he took our sicknesses and removed our diseases. And I think something we can do is we can say, look, all right, sure. If I've got a religious problem, I'll go to Jesus with it. You know, if, a, if I'm possessed by a demon, you know, Jesus, he's the one I want to go to, right? I can get help from Jesus for sure because it's a religious matter. But I'm talking about... Real life. I'm talking about my job. I'm talking about my finances. I'm talking about real problems here in the real world. And so we create this imaginary divide. We say that Jesus is helpful in religious matters, but this is not a religious matter. So when we find ourselves saying it's not about religion, it's worth looking and seeing what Jesus is doing. Jesus is healing all the sick. The prophet Isaiah said he would not simply heal religious problems, that he took on all our sickness. So when we hear ourselves, when we hear ourselves saying, saying it's too bad or it's just inconceivable, it's, it's, it's beyond the pale. When we, when we say to ourselves, it's not fair or it's, it's, um, favoritism. When we say there's too many people ahead of us or that, that it's too late. When we say it's not even really a religious problem. These are all places where we can stop and check and say, wait a minute, wait. Wait, you know what? I remember stories where people could have made that exact same objection and instead they decided they weren't going to say no to Jesus. They actually let Jesus 
make a contribution to their circumstances. So I guess the question for us, the question we need to ask is, are we going to do that? Are we going to do that in our own lives? And are we going to do it collectively as a church? Are we going to act like Jesus actually has something to contribute? You know, our 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 motto as a church, our, our mission statement is that Jewel Lake Parish helps people trust Jesus for a better life. Imagine the better lives that people would have if we quit saying no for Jesus, if we, if we never said no for Jesus. He may say no on his own. That's his business. But imagine how much better our lives and the lives of other people would be if we never said no for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Jesus stayed there all night and helped all those people who came to him with every type of disease. We thank you for the example of the Roman soldier who had the, who had the, the lack of social awareness that he actually went way beyond the pale, that he came to Jesus when he had no reason to expect Jesus would help him. We thank you for the leper who showed that even when the rules say, uh, that, 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 Something can't, that, that it's beyond your help, that he had faith that you could help anyone. Lord, we thank you for all these stories, and we ask you, Lord, to help us to remember when we start to say no for Jesus, that that's his business, not ours. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.